Welcome to Cowan Insights, a space that brings leading thinkers together to share insights and ideas shaping the world around us. Join us as we converse with the top minds who are influencing our global sectors. Hello, my name is Charles Ree, Cowan's Healthcare Technology Analyst, and welcome to the Cowan Future Health Podcast. Today's podcast is part of our monthly series that continues Cowan's efforts to bring together thought leaders, innovators, and investors to discuss how the convergence of healthcare technology and consumerism is changing the way we look at health, healthcare, and the healthcare system. And in this episode, we'll talk about data and its ability to align incentives and improve health outcomes. And to discuss a topic with me is Jean Drouin, CEO and founder of Clarify Health, a healthcare analytics platform that uses comprehensive, longitudinal, and linked data from clinical claims, prescription lab, and consumer data sources to inform thousands of predictive models and streamline decision-making for providers, health plans, and pharma. Uh, Thanks for joining us today, Jean. Thank you, Charles. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I really appreciate the invitation. Yeah, thanks. So, you know, know, when we talk about data in healthcare, it really wasn't that long ago you know, when health records were largely kept in paper records and, you know, analysis were done, you know, painstakingly with Excel and, but, you know, you know, fast forward, you know, just probably just a little more than a decade. And we've seen this incredible transformation in the healthcare industry where now, you know, most, if not all health information has been digitized, you know, but that's, you know, when I think about it, you know, isn't that just the first step, you know, isn't the next step really trying to make sense of all the data that we have now? Yeah, very much so. And, um, you know, I think for a long while, we've been focused, to your point, on uh, bringing in EMR platforms to allow uh, clinicians to capture important information as one example. Now, interestingly, though, in the background, the U.S. health system has been collecting a very large amount of additional information, claims information, lab information, um, you know, social determinants of health, which intriguingly banks and consumer firms have been collecting for their own purposes for um, years and years. And uh, the, the real challenge now that you hear CEOs talk about a lot, whether it's providers, payers, or in life sciences, is how do they transform what are now significant data sets into insights in a more timely, precise, and ultimately actionable way, because actionable means that presumably some amount of ROI is generated on the other side. Um, And, you know, some of the questions that people are asking are starting to change as well, because instead of just saying, hey, can I get historical information on someone and can you send it to me, which is what providers would do, right? People are now starting to ask, well, can I follow referrals around and not just follow them because I want to understand where they lead, but how can I match a patient to the right care? Um, So smart referrals. They're starting to say, well, can I look at prior patterns of practice to inform how to improve? And doing that by applying, for example, baseball style analytics, just as sports teams use to help their players improve. So the, the nature of the questions is starting to get more sophisticated as well. So, and, and, you know, it's interesting you talk about that, you know, banks and consumer firms have been collecting a lot of information 
uh, you know, probably for decades, right? You know, when we think back in healthcare, though, a, a lot of the, you know, people used to talk about population health. And, and I guess, you know, maybe in that sense, was it just that the healthcare system just had such a narrow view of what information they should be looking at? You know, like what, what, what did the early iterations of population health sure. maybe set the stage for then today? Population health accepted more widely is still a relatively recent phenomenon. And, and the reason I say this is I, I had a stint in the mid 2000s where uh, I was in the strategy team for NHS London. So all of London's healthcare in the UK. And it was just around, I remember 2005, 2006, that people really started talking about population health and value-based care. And at the time, really what they meant is starting to consider very basic factors such as um, demographics, income, um, and a few other things in better matching uh, or delivering the care to certain populations. So they would say, hey, culturally, this population doesn't like to go into the emergency room, but they'd accept an elder, um, you know, having a point of view. And that was just starting to come into the lingo. Meanwhile, over in banking and consumer, they were really starting to start predicting, for example, what we might like to purchase, or they were on their way to developing the means to automatically approve a credit card online, where they were developing much richer psychographic profiles, if you will, of how you and I behave as individuals. And, you know, the old adage in healthcare that it takes 17 years for a good proven innovation to wind its way through. It's almost as if it's taken us about 15 years in healthcare to say, huh, okay, those abilities that they have in the consumer and financial services industry to understand how we might behave. Wow, that might be pretty helpful in healthcare as well. And it's really only in the last couple of years that we've seen that starting to scale. And the big reason in healthcare is before the last couple of years, the various data sets that you need to stitch together at individual patient level were still quite siloed. Yeah, and speaking of that, so I mean, how much of that you're, you're saying in the last few years, obviously I think if I'm not mistaken, right, the, the final rule for interoperability uh, went into effect at the beginning of this year. Enforcement just started, but you know, even before that, right? Finally, coalescing around sort of a set of standards for interoperability. Would you say that that's been a big driver to kind of accelerate now people's yeah, efforts? I would say there there have been a couple of drivers. One of them that might seem counterintuitive is is HIPAA. Actually, HIPAA in my mind provides a fairly uh, coherent and intelligent way to think about what you can and can't do. Essentially, it says, you know what, for the purposes of improving care, ensuring the bills are correct and doing research, we'll allow you to pull various largely de-identified data sets together. But if you start using it for more commercial uses like marketing of, drug, of therapies and pharma, that's a different thing. Um, the other is around 2013, 2014, uh, a couple of important changes came in, uh, about. One is CMS made it possible to become what's known as a qualified entity. 
which means that after going through several fairly onerous hoops, you can get access to all of uh, Medicare or the data on the fee-for-service Medicare population uh, fully identified. The other thing that happened is there was a more of a push, as you know, around value-based payment models. Uh, now that did slow down during the Trump administration, but appears to be coming back. And then to your point, there continued to be a push around driving um, interoperability. The, that's what happened on the policy side. The big thing that happened on the technology side at the data level was the rise of players like Datavant and Health Verity and the ability to tokenize and link uh, previously siloed data sets in a de-identified way at individual patient level. You take all of those things, five years ago, pretty much the largest data set you could pull together was this Medicare data set. Now you can pull together a data set on 300 million Americans. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. And, you, you know, uh, and it's amazing how far we've come in, in such a short of time. You, you mentioned just now, right, obviously uh, policy um, with, you uh, know, value-based care programs, I guess, in effect, and what's been changing, you know, certainly it seems like a lot of investment decisions in healthcare tend to be guided uh, by, you know, the, you know, policy at the federal level. Uh, you know, you just mentioned, right, there were some changes with the Trump administration around value-based care. It does look like it's kind of shifting back. You know, maybe talk a little bit more, you know, how, how is that kind of uh, shifting regulatory background having an impact on not only industry, but, you know, maybe even for clarify here? Sure. Uh the unpredictability is definitely tough when you're trying to get going and you have to pick an initial niche niche in which to play. And so it so happened with us that uh, we got access as a qualified entity to the Medicare data set. And we said, oh, this is terrific. Hillary Clinton's going to get elected. The bundles will become mandatory. So we will provide the most precise and helpful analytics on how to improve performance in essentially journeys of care. Uh, and there were a couple of other companies at the time, Care Journey and others that, that came along as well. And um, roll forward 2015 to 2018, Tom Price comes in and different way of looking at the world. And all of a sudden your market completely evaporates. Now we happen to be lucky in have raised our series B just before that. So we were able to pivot and use the capital we had raised to move into more fee-for-service use cases. And, uh, you know, ultimately I would say we were fortunate on timing and it led us to a place where instead of just focusing on a subset of patients that are in value-based arrangements, we're now able to focus on all comers, whether you're in fee-for-service or fee-for-value. Um, but that said, uh, lots of companies weren't nearly as fortunate on timing. And in this case, there was really quite a bit of luck. So, you know, government seems to take it a sport that every few years you need to change the, <laughs> the rules. Uh, it makes it really tough on young innovators. And then maybe, you know, just to follow up, like, how do you look, how do you see the current regulatory landscape then for value-based care? Sure. What's really interesting to me is it looks like the commercial payers and enough providers want to go there now that 
to your point, the government seeded the thought, but now the horse is out of the barn and the commercial entities are, are gonna push it forward. The thing that's been holding it back, both on the government side, interestingly, and on the commercial side, is if you think about it, a value-based arrangement requires a trusted baselining of here was clinical performance before, here's clinical performance after, and the docs will always say, hey, my patients are different, so it has to be case mix adjusted. You load in the contract, and then a trusted party theoretically reconciles performance pre, performance post, here's the bonuses, penalties, et cetera, that get paid out. Up till now, it may sound odd, but even on the CMS side, it's usually contractors on spreadsheets who are reconciling these value-based contractual arrangements. And that has dramatically slowed things down. Um, there's now a set of um, companies, innovators, Clarify included, that are saying, hey, uh, we can automate all of this, both the baselining, the loading of the contracts and the reconciliation so that not only is it easier to figure out who should get paid what, but upfront, the docs naturally say, hey, okay, if you want me to sign up for this arrangement, can you at least show me based on how I did last year, how I do? And so far with the spreadsheet, um, method, it was, well, you'll have to trust me. And you know how well that goes down with clinicians when it comes to payment. So um, I am actually somewhat optimistic that we will see uh, an uptick in the velocity at which uh, these payments are adopted more broadly in the next five years. And it's going to come from the commercial side. It doesn't have to come from the government. Right. Uh, what you're going to see from the government, I think, is more around, you know, direct contracting. So the next generation ACO type models. Right. Um, and, and I think there's a great segue. Maybe let's let's dive into into clarify health a little bit. Sure. Um, you know, why, why don't you talk to us about, you know, your current offering? You know what? You know, how, how do you drive value uh, for payers and providers and now even pharma? Mm -hmm. So. Think of the broad problem that we see in healthcare as the following, which is the way to get to actionable business insight today. The model is typically, oh, hey, clarify, you're the new kid on the block. What data set do you have? I'll overlap your data with mine and the sliver that's different, maybe I'll buy that. And then I'll put that in my data lake, which is just a fancy term for a dirty data cesspool. And then I'm going to, when I have a business question, get um, a bunch of analysts to go in there and SQL query their way around it for four to six weeks and then come back with a one-off analysis that's dripping wet and dirty data, still looks like a spreadsheet and might be dressed up in Tableau. And that has been the primary model over the last decade for how to generate insight from big data. So it's very manual and there's actually quite a time lag. Meanwhile, if you look at an industry like banking, they have a Bloomberg terminal, which if you think of it anthropologically, enables an analyst to practice at the top of his or her license and self-service on demand, get a set of insights on a daily basis, many of which are automated. And if you want to trend things, it's there, et cetera. So think of Clarify essentially as having built the equivalent of a Bloomberg terminal 
And interestingly, our technology team came out of financial services. And we have put that capability on top of one of the cleanest, if not the cleanest of the massive healthcare data sets. So we now have a data set on over 300 million Americans, which encompasses claims, lab, prescription, EMR, and social determinants data. And the social determinants we do like a bank or Amazon at individual level. Um, and what that allows us to do is to effectively productize and automate a set of business applications that answer the fundamental questions that either a provider, a payer, or a life science company has. So a payer, for example, three main levers to make money. One is pick the right docs. Second is manage the medical risk. And third is understand the incoming risk of new members to match them to the right care. So not surprisingly, we have what we call Clarify Networks, Clarify Care, Clarify by utilization and those all help the payers to much more precisely understand individual patient journeys to be able to do a better job of pulling those levers that ultimately allow them um, to be more successful. You know, and obviously the service, right, having access to, to you know, the data on 300 million Americans, uh, quite powerful, but you know, to a certain extent, isn't access to the data becoming more ubiquitous over time? Yes. Um, you know, how, how do you differentiate then further, you know, in this field? Great question. So the way we think about that question is to think about a layer cake of a technology stack. And so the bottom layer of the cake is your data layer. The middle layer is the intelligence layer. The third layer is the workflow layer. And then on top of it, there are candles, which are the business applications um, that are offered to the market. On the data layer, one way to differentiate is how automated is the linking, ingestion, cleaning of the data itself so that the fuel you are then putting into the second intelligence layer, how refined a fuel is that? And we have invested quite a bit and have several patents around the automation of the linking and cleaning of healthcare data. So that's one. The second is that intelligence layer is where we feel the real differentiator is gonna be moving forward. So at a business level, it's how quickly can you turn raw data into specific insight? So for example, if a pharma company says, I want to understand a cohort of congestive heart failure patients with these characteristics, including social characteristics and how they do on my drug, you have to have the ability to, in seconds, go into the very complex coded healthcare data and return exactly that cohort. To do that, you need what's called a grouper, which is almost like a ledger in the banking or the blockchain world. And you need the speed and power uh, to interrogate a massive data set that quickly. Clarify is probably the only one that has the combination of the grouper and the speed to do it in real time. And then the third thing to me is don't fight the workflow in healthcare. If somebody wants the insight in an EMR, if they want a text, if they want to go into your own platform, let them have it the way they want. So those would be the three. You know, when you talk about the grouper, you know, you, went, you had the example before about a lot of healthcare, you know, they, you know, they call it the data lake. And so they have all these 
sources of data put in there and to your point, then they're querying it. And, mm -hmm. you know, my understanding has always been that data still needs to be tagged to be then retrieved. Yes. So, you know, isn't, isn't that, wouldn't that be the same for you as well? You, you talk about this grouper, but at the layer below that, doesn't that data have to be tagged in a way to be found? Sure. So um, essentially there are uh, different ways to tag data, but one of the, and this is one of the advantages in the US system relative to say the UK or Australia is ICD-10 with this explosion of codes and the additional data that was included in the claims file actually gives you a pretty good start on a tagging mechanism. And interestingly, what I often say when I speak to clinicians is, hey, um, the myth that EMR data is the gold standard for everything, we need to look at again because the claims data also comes out of the EMR. <laughs> you know, so um, now look, there are certain use cases where you absolutely want some of the data that comes out of the EMR, but there are many where the tagging from the claim and linked to an individual gives you more than enough that in the grouper, what you're doing is essentially sorting through claims codes as the tags. And then you can add you know, additional tags on top of that, but uh, it's possible to build a very, very powerful longitudinal patient journey grouper with uh, claims being this, ICD-10 claims being the spine. And that makes a lot of sense, but you know we also hear often, right? People talk about how important, um, you know, unstructured data is. You know, the sure. physician notes, you yep. know, the, the dictation. How, how do you in incorporate that into sure. in the data set? So it's a great question on where natural language processing will fit moving forward. Uh, it, it, the way I think about NLP and it being most useful is that NLP helps to translate unstructured information into a structure. And then ultimately you're adding some elements that weren't in your original structured data. So, you know, a, a good example would uh, include something about a patient's family context and that wasn't in your social determinants and you're able to structure it and, and add it. But um, Interestingly, there's also the potential for NLP to introduce a lot of false negatives. And that's been, I think, partly its downfall so far, which is if somebody has redness of the knee post-op from a knee replacement, 90 plus percent of the time, it's fine. A few percent of the time, there's something that needs to be done. But, you know, NLP alerts you all the time because it's hard to get the context. Yeah. So... I would say that we are still in a world where there is so much low hanging fruit from just using the structured data that it's been okay not to have to use too much of the unstructured data, but we will come to a place where, you know, the structured data will be figured out and the next iteration will be layering in the unstructured, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. You touched on a little bit before, but you know, now now having this access to the data, this type of data, you know, what, what kind of questions can we now answer that we couldn't before? Sure. So a big part of it is what kind of questions can we answer in a way that is of high enough quality and precision that it's now trusted by clinicians and patients. I think that's an important way to frame the question. So 
we had benchmarking in the past that was quite crude on is this a good primary care or, or not a great primary care physician. It's now possible to be much, much more specific and to say, okay, adjusting for the difficulty of the patients that you see, we can comment on uh, your quality, your cost, et cetera. So uh, there's a precision and a trust to it that's completely different. In life sciences, uh, it's now possible to, well, uh, you know, have synthetic clinical trials and actually with real world evidence have cohorts that are completely out of uh, the phenotypic and or EMR um, data. And um, that's become, you know, beginning to be accepted. Uh, and then the other piece, I think we talked about a little bit, but if we're able to automate uh, pretty much in real time where patients undergoing value, you know, who are under value-based arrangements are in their journey and therefore to the penny, what that means to the organization that is taking on that risk. You know, to your point, right, you, you, you mentioned earlier that, you know, this value-based care journey will, will be more driven by the commercial market. And, you know, you, you listen to a lot of payers, uh, you know, speak about, you know, their commitment to value-based care. And, you know, often you, you listen to some of these companies and they, they try out these great examples of, hey, you know, in this market, you know, we were able to, uh, you know, lower readmissions by some large amount or unnecessary ER visits or, you know, demonstrate really pretty compelling outcomes. But, you know, at the same time, they, they, they tend to be in specific markets, mm -hmm. you know, often where they have a lot of coverage and density or, or they, you know, they own the provider groups, you know, those, you know, what, what is limiting then, you know, really to scale value-based care more nationally? Uh, one we've already talked about, which is just the ability of the payer to administrate the contracts and to also scenario plan what it would look like for a doctor trying or a practice they're trying to sign up to go in. So that's number one. Number two, is the doctors themselves, uh, the clinicians themselves, have to have a sense that they have an ability to be the same or better off and having some ability to improve. So providing them with granular and specific enough information about either their own patient panel or their practice pattern is essential. And the granularity of the reporting that they've been getting in the past just wasn't there, nor was the timeliness. And I'll never forget this. I still remember where I was. It was five or six years ago um, near um, Stanford, and I'm talking to one of the surgeons and describing the concept for Clarify. And he says, wow, if you can pull this off, it would be amazing because the last report I got from the hospital, it was nine month old data and it went straight into the garbage. So that uh, is a huge uh, piece of it as well. And then the other, the third is, I think there just has to be a sense that a large enough proportion of health systems or practices or an individual's payments are gonna be in that kind of an arrangement that you, now have to start paying attention. Yeah, you know, maybe two questions from that. You know, first, um, you know, provider sentiment towards value-based care. You know, you often hear that, uh, to your point, right? It's maybe because it's a lack of trust 
or you know the, this current generation of physicians mm -hmm. don't want to uh, to change. Um, you know, but I think you know more and more physicians are employed by a health system, and so maybe that changes it. You know, what what flips the switch really for physicians to to really more embrace value based sure. uh, reimbursement? So we hear that you know COVID had some amount of impact in changing minds because if you were in a value based arrangement at the beginning, then you you still got your payment because you were more like a payer in that sense. We all know that payers generally did quite well during COVID. The second piece, I think you're absolutely right, which is the more you are employed and uh, larger practices and health systems tend to have the means to bring in the IT and information systems to be able to manage these programs, uh, the more it starts to make sense. Uh, whereas you know, the solo practice model really went hand in hand with fee-for-service. Look, I think the combination of more employed and also a much easier ability to see how successful one might be in the arrangements will make the difference. Now, clearly the contracts have to be structured so that enough of the clinicians are winners. Because by definition, if you're not increasing the size, and, and interestingly, when we tried to bring in value-based payments in the UK, we talked a lot about, should we slightly increase the total amount we had to pay to encourage people you know, on the margin to go into these arrangements? And you can almost say that a similar thing happened with Medicare Advantage in the U.S. and its popularity is partly because it's been quite economically advantageous for um, plans and providers to go into it. So there is a question in my mind on the government and the commercial side is if you really want people to adopt these ways of getting paid, then do you have to prime the pump in some way? Yeah. And, you know, one of the other you know, arguments that you sometimes hear from provider groups is, right, you know, how do you structure where maybe 30% of your contracts are in value-based care? So, you know, in effect, you want to keep that person out of the hospital, but the other 70% is fee-for-service, so you want to get people into your hospital, and, you know, you listen to some CFOs of hospitals say, well, I got to keep the lights on, but I do want to shift to there, and it's almost like they're using it as an excuse a little bit, but then you hear other groups say, well, you know what, I'm not going to treat my patients any differently. You know, I should have sort of the best way. What, you know, what, what's sort of the response to that? I have a lot of empathy for <laughs> those CFOs because it's really hard to keep almost a hard wall uh, in your own head and say, hey, I'm going to operate in two ways. And it's the same for the clinicians because it's almost like they need an alerting mechanism when the patient comes in and says, oh, well, it's be one way for this, one way for that. And then, um, you know, from a purpose point of view, that, that's just toxic. This is why, you know, some people say, and they may be right, that it's going to be slow, slow, slow. And then all of a sudden, you know, the switch will flip um, and you'll go from one world um, to another. If that's going to happen, though, I would think we're, the switch will have to flip completely on the government side, um, because uh, you, you know otherwise you'll you'll live in a bit of an in between. Interestingly, if you look at the commercial market, there 
there are quite a few examples of practices, you know, dabbling in it and then switching quite a bit, right? So maybe that has to be the way it's, now that's tougher for hospitals to do, obviously. Yeah, well, you know, does then maybe like direct contracting, is this direct contracting program then quite important uh, for CMS to, because that, that seems like that next step where you turn, you know, you know, all of Medicare more or less into, you know, a type of Medicare Advantage type structure. Yeah, I agreed. I, what would help a ton uh, is if it's made clear that there's at least five years worth of the same roles. And it really, there's a massive difference in my view between three years and five years because it takes most practices and hospitals, you know, a year and a half to get through all of the planning for how you're going to change things. And then you've only got a year and a half left. And it, it just, then it's really hard to your point for a CFO to say, well, why am I going to invest in this? Because I don't even know what's on the other side. Whereas if it's three and a half years on the other side and there's been a little bit of priming the pump, that starts getting way more attractive. Yeah, but, but right now this direct country is a, it's a three-year program, right? It's sure. <laughs> so, 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 you know, that, that, that's a suggestion. <laughs> Hopefully uh, someone from CMS is listening. Um, well, okay, so, well, you know, uh, you know, maybe to close out a little bit and, uh, you know, I mean, unfortunately, right, we've been exposed to COVID and uh, the, the impact it's obviously had on our economy and society. You know, you just talked about a, a lot of it here and there. Um, you know, we obviously know the problems or we, we can, you can see a lot of the problems that, that are with our healthcare system, you know, access to care, better outcomes from the care, the care that we provide. You know, I know we've talked before, but, you know, you seem quite optimistic in some ways, you know, so, you know, as you look out into the future, you know, what, what do you think our health, you know, health, how, what do you think our healthcare system will look like in five to 10 years? You know, how, how do you think it can, how it can be? And it sounds like, you know, I kind of have a little bit more brighter view on things. Mm -hmm. um, five years is very short, so I'll take 10. Um, and uh, so I think in 10, the trends around, you know, employment of physicians into larger groups, continue to see that. Consolidation, continue to see that on the provider side. Interestingly, I think you're going to see much more of a willingness on the part of payers to invest in their provider partners to be able to better take care of populations. Uh, and you'll see payers increasing the amount of providers they have in value-based arrangements, and those things go hand in hand. Um, you'll see a lot more transparency for patients on the quality and availability of the facilities and the providers that they have that they can go to. I think that'll mean patients will affect a little bit more choice. I think one thing that doesn't change though is uh, there's still something quite sacred about the provider patient relationship and those providers that nurture that will continue to do really well. Um, I do think though that the successful payviders you'll see making significant growth moves. Uh, so an example could be, you know, Intermountain looking to grow in the immediate states you know, that it plays in. 
And then different parts of the country are going to move in different ways because, you know, healthcare structure in New York City is obviously very different than it is, um, you know, in other parts of the country. But even in New York City and at places like the Cleveland Clinic, they're starting to think about their total cost of care and being able to go to their payers to argue higher facility rates based on the fact that they on a total cost of care basis, do a better job of treating the members. So funnily enough, even in a fee-for-service rationale, people are starting to use a value argument to justify their fee. And I think you'll see more of that because the analytics exist for that now. What's interesting in all of this, though, we really haven't touched on the consumer, the patient as a consumer. And, and there's a lot, you know, often talked about consumerism and in sending the patient to make the right choice. But it, but it really seems in many ways, you know, if you arm the provider with the right tools, they're able to, you know, because of that relationship with the patient, um, they're able to get that person into the right setting. Is that maybe in a sense that as much as we talk about consumerism, that isn't really the right way to necessarily tackle some of these issues? So my question actually is more around over what elements of the patient journey does the patient want to be a consumer and over what elements would the patient prefer a guide? So I think in terms of the experience that one receives, you're the patient is and or the family member helping out probably does want to be a consumer and um so when i call the hospital is it a real person that answers how quickly does it take is the parking um uh, you know free is um do they make me feel dignified etc i think those things people want to be a consumer around i'm not sure to what extent the patient wants to be a consumer around should I choose this or that doc? You know, that, that, yeah. and so I think it's, for me, it's, that's what's going to be interesting is um, where is the patient willing to be a consumer? And, you know, there've been lots of attempts over the last 10 or 15 years, to your point, to introduce incentives like $15 a month for a gym membership or uh, lower copays or, or whatnot. And, relative to what's on offer, it just feels that either the needle hasn't moved as much or it hasn't scaled as much as people might have hoped. So um, I would find it really interesting for someone to do a psychographic study of where along the journey, as I say, does someone really want to be a consumer and how? I, I think it's a giant open question. Now, yeah. where it cracks it, um, kudos to them, because that'll be a very, very big deal. Well, I'd imagine, you know, uh, using, getting access to Clarify's 300 million uh, patient <laughs> database might be a good start. <laughs> it might well be. You're giving me an idea, actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, uh, Jean, I think that's all the time we have. Uh, you know, really appreciate you taking the time to uh, be with us today. And, uh, you know, good luck with everything. And, uh, you know, thank you, everyone, for joining us for this episode. Charles, thank you. It was a real pleasure and uh, really appreciate it. Thanks for joining us. Stay tuned for the next episode of Cowan Insights.